You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And today, Neil, uh, we're kicking off season four, which I am very excited and proud to bring to our listeners. I think I'm sure we've got a, we've got a lot of great content coming up this season that I'm really excited to share with everyone. But I want to take a moment, pause, and talk about a community cultural issue uh, that has been much in the public conversation everywhere recently. Let's let's talk for a little bit about what actually happened in this instance that I think is directly affecting our, our listenership and the people who are part of this community. Um, so both you and I attended NIPS this year in Long Beach. At NIPS, there was a final party for the, for the conference and the Imposteriors, who are a band comprised of super high-level uh, researchers and professors played and the lead singer for the band is uh, Brad Carlin, who is a professor and head of the Division of Biostatistics at the University of Minnesota. And at that party, at the end of the night, he made a joke that was in pretty poor taste. The researcher, Christiane Lum, who um, works a lot on problems with HR DAG, she, a couple of days after that, she had not attended NIPS, she wrote a blog post on her personal blog about the statement that he had made and also outlined a number of instances of uh, sexual harassment. And she published this on December 13th. And in this blog post that Miss Lum wrote, she referred to Carlin and a person who in her post she called S as having, uh, as having been people who were involved in several of these instances. And we later learned through some reporting from Bloomberg that S referred to Stephen Scott, who was with Google, and Carlin is now under investigation by his university. We are talking openly now about instances of sexual harassment, abuse of power within the community. And I think that uh, it's, it's a really important subject that deserves our attention. And one thing that I wanted to do with you today, Neil, is to talk about sort of where we are and um, how we can go forward, how we can use this instance to uh, teach ourselves a valuable lesson and improve as a, as a community and as, as a group of humans. Yeah, I think, um, uh, I mean, obviously there are specific allegations that are being investigated, um, but uh, I think probably making direct comment on those is not helpful, but um, right. uh, stepping back and sort of having a think about how and why these sort of things can generally come about in a, well, any community, but, um, yeah. you know, with a focus perhaps on academia and, uh, I mean, uh, statistics and machine learning in, in general, um, to perhaps increase awareness um, of what we can do um, and Having said that, I'm not saying that I'm in any form an expert um, on right. doing this, but it just sort of, you can see certain sis systemic things that um, can bring these challenges about and that we should learn how to address them. Neil, you make a very good point that we are we are not experts here, but I think that the an important thing to do is for the community to keep discussing these things, right? openly, um, because that's the only way I think that we're going to bring about um, change that's lasting. Yeah, and obviously th these incidents took part as part of a wider context, the Me Too campaign um, and mm -hmm. what's been going on in Hollywood. 
Um, I can't say I'm a, a big fan of everything being played out over Twitter. Um, mm. I'm not sure that that's necessarily the right solution to everything, but one also has to say that those open discussions that we've all become aware of uh, are helping communities, um, uh, well, should help. I mean, the right response is to take a look at yourself uh, as a community and say, well, um, not, not, I mean, of course, there will be finger pointing uh, and, and, and of course, that's necessary and, and, and dealing with behaviors uh, where individuals have committed it. But um, I don't think that, that my own feeling is that um, to step back a little and sort of say, well, OK, if incidents have happened, um, but somehow we were all participating in allowing them to happen in the right. open in the communities. These incidents aren't whatever the circumstance, not just restricted to academia. They're not happening um, just in private. There are examples of behavior that are public examples of behavior. Right. Um, so uh, even if it's unintentional, somehow um, it seems we've been complicit uh, right. as, a, as a community you know, um, in, in, in those behaviors. Yeah, definitely. And I think that there are ways that, that you can sort of I think set yourself up for uh, an, a community that is more used to uh, abuses of power when you have really when you have a really hierarchical a, a really well defined hierarchical power structure. And I think in academia you have a very well set up entrenched hierarchical power structure, right? And so that makes it very hard to say something about someone's behavior or or criticize someone um out even outside of the questions or issues you might be working on or your career because because of the impact that that person has um throughout the entire structure that you may also be a part of right so i think that those uh those setups make it make the change that much harder to to affect yeah, I think there's two components to that. There's the, uh, so, uh, I mean, again, my impression is that um, uh, where there are power structures, as as you um, point out for academia, that um, we're more vulnerable to these types of problems. And I think there's two parts to the reasons for that. Uh, one is that um, uh, powerful people, become used to certain forms of behavior around mm -hmm. them whether they're conscious of, of it or not uh, they have certain expectations of the way people behave towards them um, and those expectations could uh, amplify unconscious bias right right um, and I think often do um, uh, and and I I don't think that that's necessarily people are taking uh, sort of steps to I mean and this this applies to whatever minority community we're talking about but the mm -hmm. um, I think that you can if you're a powerful person become presumptive about what you expect from people mm -hmm. and I think that that's one side to it um, and that uh, can perhaps involve in overstepping the mark subconsciously to actually conscious abuse of that. So there's a spectrum of behaviors. Mm -hmm. um, and just because uh, 
we as individuals aren't guilty, all of us, of the conscious uh, transgressions, I think we can still look to ourselves on the subconscious transgressions. Yes, definitely. Um, those who are in a position of power. And, of course, those who are not are in the position of um, finding it difficult to challenge that power. And that can be either in the form of allowing uh, people to get away with behavior, which would not be acceptable in your direct peers, but feeling intimidated um, to not call it out. To actually aping that behavior. I mean, mm -hmm. actually powerful people uh, um, encourage, uh, sometimes encourage people to sort of, you know, come along with the power as part of it. To right. actually um, uh, being a victim. So th these are the bystanders to actually being a victim of behavior of, of the direct conscious transgressions of the power boundaries and finding it hard to, um, uh, to sort of call that out because of the effect it may have on your career or your you know, relationships with your colleagues or whatever else. And, and it strikes me that all of these things are present um, whenever there's power asymmetries. Um, now, where, okay, we're lucky, where we're at an advantage, I hope, as academics, is that we should be able to take a long, hard look at this and say, well, hey, that's... You know, th there's a problem there. We like tackling problems. And there's a problem where we can do some direct good rather than just writing right. a bunch of papers and uh, sort of maybe An take some actions. An area for application. An application <laughs> of the thinking about how we can improve behavior. Right. Um, so, but, but these things, are, I mean, I think as we... Power structures are one thing, but the other thing we know is that they're quite entrenched. Yes. Um, so it's not a new thing that these power structures exist in academia. And no. actually, I often think it's kind of remarkable for, for the United States, which views itself as a sort of a egalitarian society. I think that the, the, the power structures in academia are almost more embedded than, than say, in, in oh, the UK. Oh, yes, definitely. Because of systems of endorsement around letter writing, which mm -hmm. uh, have a large effect on people's career, which I think is very entrenched in the US uh, compared to the UK. Yeah. Um, so, um, but it's sort of remarkable when you do read these particular stories. You know, I think the question in my mind is often, well, th this was going on and, and maybe there were hints of it going on, but how, how could people get away with it for so long? They're sort of um, taking advantage of somehow, although, you know, systemically communities turning a, apparently a blind eye to this behavior because there's awareness at some level but not a not at a community level yeah uh, and i think that's a that's a really great point like what and and i think is sort of the next step and where the the rest of us who are not experts and also perhaps not victims can actually have a play a meaningful part like what can we do to make this part of something that we're aware of as a community and we were chatting about this the other day neil and you had a really great trick for sort of thinking about whether or not a person's behavior 
is sort of outside of the lines, maybe a little bit too much um, on a number of fronts, sort of with regards to abuse of power or aggressiveness or on any sort of fronts. I think you told me that you like to sort of think about what the person is doing, step back for a moment, and then switch the person's gender. And that helps you to sort of get a step back on whether or not the person is is doing something that you would find acceptable for everyone or if the or if you're making an assumption about that behavior given who they are or or what they're doing yeah i think um that's something i find very helpful i mean as someone so actually the time when it comes up a lot uh for me where i use this trick is in particular when i'm chairing meetings so um, I think that there's a, an onus on the chair to be impartial. And I know sometimes if I get emotionally involved in a subject, emotionally, I mean, you know, as we do about ideas, passionate, mm -hmm. perhaps emotional mm -hmm. is the wrong word, passionate about an idea. Um, I'm not very good necessarily at behaving in the way I want to. You know, mm. there's this, there's, there's like, you know, there's these dual process models of cognition, system one and system two. System two is the thing you think you are, this rational thing, and system one is, you know, and then there's like all these analogies, system two, the human, system one, the ape, all, all this stuff. So you are actually the ape, and, and when you get passionate about something, you behave like an ape, and you... Uh, and to try and control that, I, I have coping mechanisms in myself because I know my, my own behaviors aren't always as I would like them to be. Um, and one of those little coping mechanisms I use is, is yeah, gender flipping. So I look at uh, how I'm thinking of the person. I see someone's behavior, and sometimes I think, oh, that's unusual behavior. Mm. And... Um, then I try and flip their gender and see if I mentally still think they're, uh, not mentally, I don't actually physically try and flip their gender. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, one has to be careful that, you know, there's a spectrum of gender, but this is sort of at, mm -hmm. a, at, at an extreme. I sort of think, uh, like, like there was an example, I was in a meeting once where um, a very senior male professor was kind of upset with the way the meeting was going and was making all sorts of bellowing noises and um, sort of huffing and closing his eyes and putting his hands behind his head and it was kind of like the, the right mental picture is there was sort of a large bison sort of <laughs> and it, I, I was finding it reasonably intimidating <laughs> right yeah and, and I was you know and of course that starts having an effect on yes. maybe your decision making you know because yeah. I've been this this individual was senior to me I'm chairing the meeting yeah um and it wasn't going their way and then in that case I did gender flipping and I embarrassingly I, I just thought the individual looked ridiculous as a female doing this and i was realizing i was only finding this hey, behavior even in any shape or form acceptable because it was a male which right. shows is my unconscious bias this sort of bellowing and snorting and stuff like this as i'm you know unfortunately in society is like accepted for a high-powered male right but somehow right. for a, a a female it isn't um, right. Accept it, and I just thought, oh my god, this behavior is utterly ridiculous. I mean, what? Well, not not because I just thought it would be ridiculous in a female. I said, like, no, why no. should I be being swayed by bellowing and right. snorting if it's not going this individual's way? They need to make some rational points. Right. And I'm not saying that they were using this personally, but obviously they were exhibiting a pattern of behavior that. Um, yeah. Was was a little bit absurd, but they could they could get away with. And I I I, I love the I love the idea that like. 
a a uh, an acceptable behavior, an acceptable it, sort of for anything, for expressing yourself in any way, should be totally normal when expressed by either a by someone who is presenting as any sort of gender, right? Yeah. So, like, if someone is doing something that's a little bit crazy, and you shift your context just enough to be like, oh what are my internal biases about this? And you give yourself just enough space to be like, does that, would that, would I think differently about this if this action was being performed by someone else? Like that's an amazing way to get space on your own personal biases. Yeah, I think it precisely. And it really, um, certainly it helps me, you know, there's other arguments that says, oh, people should just hear what people say and everything else and ignore all the other forms of behavior, you know, I, we are a very accepting community. So even if someone's forming abnormal behavior, you know, one, sh- I, one perhaps shouldn't perhaps make it think in that case, that abnormal behavior that wasn't, you know, it was just probably even just a tick from the person potentially, right? But it's just, I should try and ignore it and, and remove it from any of my thinking. I shouldn't make me think less of the person when they're when they make sensible points later on. I shouldn't ignore those points. But when you start thinking about that, it just start, I'd used that for chairing, and it just made me think, oh, well, I should just use this in social situations more. I should use this when we're standing around in a group and, you know, uh, for my own behavior towards yeah. a student that approaches me, whether they're male or female. Uh, and if I want to sort of think how appropriate am I being, um, then I should, I should use the gender flipping to help. Uh, and, and not just... And even, you know, with people who aren't, you know, necessarily identifying as one gender or another, just try and put, oh, what would I think of this person if this was just some other individual, this, you know, right. you know, I, I think. It's not, I like, I, gender is really handy, I, I think, because it's sort of everyone in general, un, unless you are working extremely hard at being androgynous, everyone sort of presents some some sort of gender to the world right so you can easily kind of flip that context and it's just it's not about the thing that you've chosen to flip it's the flipping it's the like the movement on the context that allows for that and i like what you said a lot about um that we should look at the behavior and sort of separate it for the from the person and and that i think is is something that's really important when you're in a community which is highly skewed towards um, men, which computer science um, at large and, and machine learning it, sort of in general is, and also that attracts people who are not as sociable as like the marketing community or the communications community or something like that. I think if you can get to the point where if you are monitoring your behavior or your colleague's behavior or your friend's behavior and you feel like you need an intervention, saying something like, oh man, that joke was creepy, right? Instead of saying something like, don't, don't be creepy. Don't you be creepy. But that joke was creepy. The, the thing is creepy, not the person. Calling out right? the behavior rather than the person can help. Yeah. People are people. And actually you can't, um, I was actually reading some uh, about code reviews. So code mm. reviews are this process which many of our listeners will be familiar with, where Uh in order to have your code incorporated in the product, then other people look at it and they pass comment. And a lot of these guidelines are very much in with what you're talking about. You know, how to do these things. Well, you can imagine that these things are done badly. I mean, I love Mm. them within my team. I love, it gives me so much. I learn so much about how to improve things. I'm not, 
writing so much code, but reading other people's code reviews. But a lot of the guidelines around good code reviews said exactly the same thing mm. that um, uh, you, you just said. Um, and, and, you know, we could think of it in, in that way. I mean, if we yeah. want to sort of say, you know, code review is I'm going to ship this code and it's going to go out there in the public and affect the product. Yeah. Uh, and, and having other people sort of looking at it and sort of saying, well, you know, th this use of things can lead to this problem and you might not see it now, but there's a downstream consequence you haven't understood. And, but the way you put that is, is very important. It's like, oh, you idiot, everyone knows you shouldn't do that. You know, right, right. Not a great way. No. You know, no one really likes being criticized, even if you're criticizing the thing that they've created. Um, right. So part of this, by the way, is also if you were on the receiving end of a query on your behavior, you know, you, you might feel like you, it's giving you a rise, but actually the, fir the, the first thing, well, maybe they're right. And even if they're wrong, maybe there's a perception that I should be worrying about. And I guess the similarities there that, you know, so you make it impersonal. So um, uh, calling out the behavior rather than, you know, saying you're a bigot or something like that. Right. Yes. Right. And I Even think if they are a bigot. <laughs> right. But I think I think that oftentimes that that's a great that's a great tactic for when you're in a situation that's unfolding in the moment. Right. Because like everyone is probably a little bit shocked. And, and you need and you might want to engage with it in the moment. And so being able to call out the behavior directly um, as it's unfolding, I think it's going to be more potent than uh, than than because if you if you want to give the person the benefit of the doubt that they are that they don't understand how what they are doing could be harmful, then this is a way to, to do that. But it but if it's but again, like if it is obviously if it is obviously harmful, if it is obviously criminal, you need to talk to someone who has expertise in this, but then you should also maybe talk to the person who was on the receiving end of it because you don't want to, you don't want to blow up their spot. You don't want to um, bring them into a situation that they are not ready for or don't want to be brought into. But, but as a way to sort of like diffuse something or to point it out while you're there in the moment, I think that, that 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 sort of thing is really is is the best way to go. And I love I love the idea of it being like a code review. That's so it's so perfect because you're like oh well you might not want to do this because in future cascading here are the events that would unfold from this or here are the ways that people are not going to be able to interact with that behavior. Here are the consequences of that. The consequences, the downstream. It may seem small yeah. now. Like, like the classic, like, I mean, the, the, I think the only thing I did in the code review, and, you know, which is correct, what I was able to sort of say something was a, a try catch where they didn't catch the specific type of error. It should have been uh -huh. a poor error. And actually, yeah. I've, I've suffered a downstream consequence of doing that. So I was able to comment. That's the only time I've ever written. <laughs> But, 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 you know, the, the person who I was commenting on, I think, was a more junior engineer and, and just mm -hmm. hadn't come across that. And, and as soon as you say it, it's like, oh, God, oh, my God, of course, I can see that could be a nightmare to debug. Totally. Um, right. And, um, of course, but it's still important the way that it's pointed out. And I think that the other thing, and I don't necessarily think I have a good answer on this. Um, mm -hmm. And actually, I, I can't remember when we last spoke about this, whether I shared this experience of you, because it only just came to me, but it's very relevant for this. And this was in a meeting where I was a subject at a meeting. And um, the, I have to be careful about how I put the meetings. I don't really want to 
it was the situation was um, something hadn't gone our way and we were doing a review meeting and uh, it had been a proposal that we'd put together um, and uh, we kind of not compromised the sort of sensible things when we've we, which we were aware of that we could compromise that were more likely to get the proposal funded. Mm. So um, by like sort of, uh, you know, sort of when we wrote the proposal, maybe saying we were going to do something which we weren't really interested in just because it was a fop to a community that we thought might review the proposal. And even though we knew it was the wrong thing, we thought, oh, we have to put it in there or else they'll yeah. feel slighted. So in this proposal, we decided to be really purist and sort of not do that and just say, no, we're amazing and we're going to just lay it out and uh um and because that's the way it should be right. um and and actually we were uh, uh we were sort of being criticized a bit for the um for, for not providing a fop actually mm. so, so in mm. this review meeting said so, well, well you shouldn't provide a fop by, by an individual who we were going through why it wasn't funded and uh i said well we decided that we didn't want to do that you know that that actually the right thing to show was was the top quality work and to sort of get that funded and then the individual, I just kind of, I'm still staggered that they did this. They started saying, well, we all know um, that uh, women should be able to dress however they like and walk in dark areas. And I'm just, and you're seeing this unfolding situation. And, well, I don't even want to go on to what he said next. But, and there sure were women in good. the room. No. And there were women in the room who, um, uh, in this meeting, because it was a reasonably passionate meeting, who hadn't been allowed to even comment much on the meeting. And it just unfolded it in the so horrifying way that you might expect. And then there's this sort of moment where I definitely explicitly decided not to call him out on it because he was in a position of power. And I didn't, and we didn't even, you know, at that point, I felt there was still something to be retrieved from the meeting and we could get somewhere we wanted to be internally and i didn't say anything i just let that sit and you know in the context of this i you know i felt annoyed afterwards we didn't get anything out of the meeting anyway right <laughs> but but that's actually not the point um where's my mechanism and i know i can't say i can't stand here and say uh that the next time exactly the same thing happens when there's a position of power. I definitely know. I learned a lot from that. I learned a lot from when I see that sort of thing coming, I tend to call it out. Um, because, because I think even if we had got something out of me, the way I feel about not having called it out there is very, very bad. And, and not just because the, um, it was only uh, one female that was present. You know, I just feel embarrassed that I didn't in, in, in front of her. It wouldn't have done anything perhaps more than, reassure her that, that that people worry about this but and i think that that maybe is the main reason you know what harm did it do apart from, in some sense uh it was in a private conversation what harm did it do other than to my impression of the individual but it, it must have felt very awkward to the only female researcher present yeah and i'm sure like a number of men it also made them feel super awkward it made you feel super awkward and yeah. like you still think about that all the time. It's and one of those cringe moments in life where, you know, but normally, unfortunately, it's me doing the cringe. Well, it is me doing the cringy thing because the reason I sort of cringe is that I didn't say anything. Mm. But, um, and I don't know. So, whereas I have some mechanisms for sort of helping me identify when I'm dispassionate, in that situation, I was, um, 
passionate about what we were talking about because I felt indignant, as we often all do, you know, whether we're right or wrong, uh, about uh, when our when our personal grant has been declined. Um, and I, I guess, retrospectively looking at it, I wasn't able to pull myself out of that indignancy and do the right thing, which is to sort of, in a calm manner, without using it against, because obviously, you know, without then using it as a scoring point, because there's another right. thing that could have gone wrong. Right. Like, I sort of like, sort of say, aha, got you, got you, you made a, you were sexist. Now, right. now I win. <laughs> That's yeah. not going to help as well. I mean, right. uh, before doing podcasts, before coming to Talking Machines, um, I worked in the world of news. Um, I spent some time at WBUR, which um, is now having a very large internal investigation around abuse of power and some sexual harassment. And that sort of talk uh, is not uncommon in newsroom meetings. And I find that once you like get to that level, you're not going to get a whole lot more out of that meeting. Whatever you wanted to salvage is just like it, like it. And, and so I have found that, and, and you're so right about like not using this as a way to like score a point or even be perceived as like scoring a point or like stopping, you know, like, well, I win now because we have to stop the conversation because you're being ridiculous. Right. But, but you get to that point and, and, uh, <laughs> I, I used to call it the live to fight another day uh, plan, which may, may not be the greatest title for it. But when we get to that point in a meeting, I used to say if I w had any sort of power over how the meeting was going, um, I said, you know, I don't I don't think we're going to be able to get anywhere else about the topics that we need to resolve today. So let's let's reschedule. Right. And that and that sort of like puts a chill on the ridiculous thing that was just said. Um, and allows me to gather space and time around probably feeling pretty enraged around the ridiculous thing that was just said. <laughs> and also gives me another chance to like come back and actually get the things done that I need to get done. Um, and also gives you space to maybe talk to that person in private about the ridiculous thing that they just said. But those are, those are so hard, especially if you don't have control over the meeting, but you're, you're required to be there. Oh man, I uh those situations are 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 so difficult. Yeah, um I re really like the thing you just said about diffusing the situation by um revisiting. It's it's rare as we kind of know unfortunately say in the political landscape which is so divided now. It's 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 rare that uh, a new consensus is uh arrived at when the quality of debate is low. Yeah. Um, and I think what you're saying is that that, which I hadn't really thought of, but um, in retrospect, I think you're absolutely right, that that was just a massive indicator that the quality of the debate we were having was pretty low. I mean, it, it, it got it had got just lower, but it kind of, you know, it wasn't like that it was all just going fine. And, uh, you know, we were just about to reach a conclusion. And then that was said. It, it, it um, you know, it was still... A, pretty shocking when he said it but the um it when was people just pull that stuff indicator. out yeah yeah it's like it's like it's like a sinking ship people don't pull that stuff out when everything's going fine that's a weird lifeboat when you're reaching for something like that one thing that i've started thinking we're sort of experiencing the communal cringe moment right and communally we could either say to ourselves 
oh, let's not think about that. And what right. We do about That's fine. That's fine. Or yeah. we could look at our communal cringe moment and sort of say, well, what is it about our general behavior that enabled this? You know, when we're on the cringe moment, it's really, we sort of really overstepped, but presumably we did other things getting close to the cringe moment before and kind of got away with it, you know, but, and then it's, it, it is, it is that, that I, there's lots of things I think that, you know, we're not individually empowered to address, but I think we are individually empowered to address that. Right. Yeah. I think if you are not, if you are not personally involved in the situation as someone who has acted or someone who is the victim of an action or you are the expert in resolving the, that situation in some way whether it be professionally in HR or um, emotionally as a therapist you don't have any action to take in a specific situation but mm. the action that we do all have that we can take is to think about our own behaviors and to try to create positive change in a way that is effective and helpful for those around us. And uh, let's be clear, I think that that applies not just in this case where we had to have the cringe moments yeah. before people started talking about it as a community, but uh, about a lot of stuff and not just oh, yeah. around uh, sexual discrimination, but um, uh, racial discrimination or just, you know, prejudging people on the basis of appearances i hope that we're quite good at a lot of these things actually you know there's a lot of interesting uh, there's a diversity of appearances in in lips attendees and you know i always certainly try and speak to people with an open mind and i think a lot of my colleagues do but um uh this this applies to a number of areas i think Oh, yeah. I think this applies. I think this is a golden rule that you can apply to not only your professional work, but like the way you live your life. And I think that it is extremely important for this community um, because members of this community are creating the tools that are going to have such a profound impact on hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives. Right. And And if we don't take a moment to think about how we act, it's much harder to think objectively about the choices we make. Um, and, you know, if those choices are getting codified into to strong tools and, and machines, then, then that, has a, that has an amazing impact. This is not a problem that you solve. This is a, this is a, a way that we must grow and change as, as a community, as a group. Yeah, and, and, and the community is sort of self-defining, you know, and it, yeah. yeah, it's a, so it's a community problem as well, right? Yeah, definitely. Well, that's it for us on this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode. Bye.